Please turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 2 and verse 12. When I was in seventh grade, my family was uh, still up in New York, and uh, in our school system there, it was, it was upstate New York, and they wanted to be very progressive, so they were trying out all the latest educational theories and all that, and uh, I remember in seventh grade, uh, my school had very few walls. Right, so, you know, you, you go into class. Remember, we I had a Spanish class, and uh, Spanish class had had um, one wall, had no doors, had one wall, and then there was a French class over here. So we're practicing Spanish here, and you could see and hear the French class over here. And uh, I remember my my math class, in particular, it had it had two walls, but it was a complex of five classrooms here. There was no wall in the back, and then there was a hall that was open, then five more classrooms over here. So you imagine seventh and eighth grade boys and girls in classes without walls. Uh, My math class in particular was entirely self-paced also. (laughs) It was seventh grade math at my own pace, so what I'd do is I'd show up at class, and I would go to the teacher. I'd get my lesson for the day. I would teach myself the lesson and if I had problems, I could go up and I could ask for a little bit of input, but otherwise I'd just work through the lesson myself, and then when I was ready to, felt like I was ready to take the test, and I would take the test, and I'd grade it myself, and turn it back into the teacher. So, uh, you know, what happened was, I, I did just like the very, very bare minimum of work. I, you know, I messed around with my friends, I had friends in the other classes, and you know, we'd make faces and learn the hand signals that we created, all kinds of stuff. And then it would come to the end of the quarter, and I would have a requirement that I had to get done. And so I would just rush and rush and rush. And I'd do like 20 lessons in two days. And then I'd forget them all completely after that. And you know what I learned from that process and I've seen repeated through my life is I do better if the pressure's on. And, and I, I, I like to project that onto others. I, I like to think everybody's like me. If there's a deadline or if there's somebody looking over my shoulder, if there's a professor or a teacher, or there, there's reward or punishment that is immediate, I do better. Uh, Unfortunately, that is true also in my spiritual life. I do better spiritually if I I have to preach a message. I mean, I I had to have quiet times this week because I had to get ready to preach, so I better be walking with the Lord. Or if I'm leading a Bible study, I do better than if I'm just a participant in the Bible study because there's accountability, there's pressure, there's a deadline. I wish that I weren't that way, but I am. And I think human nature, generally, we all kind of operate that way. When Paul talks to the Philippian believers, his concern for them is that, in a sense, there's no spiritual deadline. There's no pressure on them. He is absent from them. There's no teacher or disciple maker or apostle looking over their shoulder. And he wants them to press on with the Lord, even though there's no external motivation. He wants to stir up the motivation within them. I want you to read with me in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, and see how does Paul stir them up? Verse 12, he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. When you are spiritually unmotivated, what do you do? When you're spiritually completely unmotivated, where do you go? What do you think about? Uh, If your answer was Jesus, that's good. You know, you're in church. That's usually a a safe bet. Uh, I think about Jesus. I think about three things in particular about Jesus. First, I think about grace. These are the mental processes I go through when I'm spiritually unmotivated. I think about the grace of God. 
I think about the fact that God loves me in Jesus Christ in spite of myself. God knows absolutely everything about me, even things I don't even know about myself. He knows all of my past, and yet he chooses to love me. He knows everything that's going to happen in my future, and yet I know that he will remain loyal to me. He has given me the gift of an eternal relationship with him. It's a gift. It's freely given. I didn't earn it. I can't lose it. The moment that I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins, I received this greatest of gifts, and I'm secure in it. And for me, that's highly motivating. In, in, I think in all relationships, when we're secure in the relationship, it's incredibly motivating. So I go back and I think about the grace of God in my life. Where would I be without him? Where am I now because of him? Second thing I think about is reward. God has freely given me eternal life. He's caused his spirit to dwell in me. He creates uh, the character of Christ in me. He allows me to go out and uh, reflect Christ to the world and, and do things that draw people to Christ. And then at the end of my life, I'll stand before him and he'll reward me for things that he has done through me. And that's really motivating to me to think about standing in front of Jesus and having him say to me, well done. Man, you, Brian, you lived well. That's really motivating for me. But I've noticed that at different points in my life, there are different things that motivate me. Sometimes I think about the grace of God Sometimes I think about reward, and then sometimes I think about fear, the fear of the Lord. A lot of times we hear the word fear, and we think of it entirely in negative connotations, and certainly there are some fears that are unreasonable and unrational, and they paralyze us, but there are also good fears. There are things in this world that we should be afraid of, healthy fears that keep us safe. And I illustrate this for you, a um, real simple illustration, but uh, every year the pastors go on a, a turkey hunt. And uh, a few years ago, we were on our turkey hunt, and uh, Zach, our youth pastor, we were out. Uh, we weren't actually hunting at that point in time. We had our guns with us. It made it feel tough, you know, we're just, but we're just walking. We are just walking around this property where we go every year, and uh, Zach was about 100 yards in front of me, and, and he just stopped by a little mesquite tree, and he bent down real low. He had his gun propped there, and all of a sudden, he, he, he screamed. More like a shriek. I mean, it was really, he just shrieked and he jumped in the air. I mean, he really, he just got way in the air. He jumps back and he chambered a shell, boom, boom. And I, I ran toward him. I probably, if I was rational, would have run away, right? But I thought maybe he needs help, you know, but scream like that. I've never heard him scream. So I ran to him and he was there and he was just, you know, adrenaline's pumping. He's just shaking. And there was a rattlesnake with his head blown off. He had crouched down next to a mesquite tree and there was a rattler curled up. Right, I mean, six inches from his leg, and he heard it rattle, and he jumped back. Boom, boom, blew it away, which is kind of cool. But it was we went, we went back. We were done. <laughs> that was rational fear, right? That was wise fear. It saved his life. It saved him from harm. Uh, in the Bible, the fear of the Lord is wisdom, because God is great. He is far off. He is transcendent. He's creator of the universe. He is more powerful than we can even possibly imagine. And so Paul motivates these folks with the fear of the Lord. I want you to look with me again. Chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says, So then, my beloved. So then. So then what? Well, he's, he's looking back at the previous section. Verses 9 through 11. Let's, let's read those together. For this reason also, oh, wait a second, What's for this what reason? Well, he's going back to the previous section, verses 5 through, 11, five through 8. In 5 through 8, we saw Jesus. 
the eternally existent Son of God, second member of the Trinity, as a choice, choice of his own will, taking on the limitations of humanity in obedience to the Father, becoming a slave, a servant of humanity, obeying the Father even to the point of death. And because of that death, therefore, Paul says in verse 9, for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father Therefore, so then, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because Jesus Christ is going to be exalted to the highest place and be King of kings and Lord of lords and every knee will bow before him, therefore bow right now, bend the knee right now because that's wisdom. We serve a great king and one day we will stand in front of Jesus Christ. Our eternal destiny is secure because we're believers in Christ. But he'll look at our lives and he'll evaluate our lives. Did we live well? Did we allow Jesus Christ's character to be formed in us? I want you to turn back with me. Keep your place here in Philippians and turn back to Psalm chapter 2. I think Psalm chapter 2 is a, is a really beautiful poetic image of why we fear the Lord. In Psalm 2, there is an interaction between uh, the Father, the Son, and the nations of the earth. Chapter 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing, an empty thing, a foolish thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that is, against Yahweh, the Father, and against his anointed, that is, the Son, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't need to remain in submission to God the Father and his appointed Son. We don't need to do that. Let us tear apart their fetters, cast their cords away from us. Let us be independent from God. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. The father speaks and he says, As for me, I have chosen who will be king over all the earth. And it is none of you rulers of the earth. It is my son. He will be king in Zion. And the son speaks, verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord Yahweh. God said to me, the son You are my son, that is, my appointed ruler. Today I have declared you begotten or my unique one. You're the only one. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You will rule them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. Son, the father says, you will be the ruler. I've chosen you to be the ruler. Based upon this, the psalmist turns to the nations and he instructs them. Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence or fear. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. You kings of the earth, be wise. Take refuge in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, you've taken refuge in him. When God looks at you, he sees you in Christ and you are safe. 
The blood of Christ covers you. The blood of Christ will never be removed from you. You are safe. And so you can come boldly into the very presence of God. But coming boldly, you still come reverently and in awe because God is a great king, ruler of the universe, and we don't take him lightly. And so Paul says to these Philippian believers, work out your salvation with fear and with trembling because that's the proper attitude before Jesus Christ, who is King of kings, Lord of lords, before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. I turn back with me now to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is uh, the central imperative. It's the central command of this paragraph. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, when I read that phrase, uh, two questions come to my mind. The first is, what does he mean by salvation? Right? Because I thought salvation was a free gift. But now Paul is saying, work it out. Okay, so what does he mean by salvation? Second question that comes to my mind is, How do I work it out? Sounds important. I better figure that out. All right, so let's go back and look at the first question. What does he mean by salvation? Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about this briefly. The word salvation means deliverance or rescue. So every time you see salvation, you're reading through the Bible, just think in your mind or write in the margin, rescue. Because when you hear rescue or deliverance, you think deliverance from what? Rescue from what? Salvation from what? Variety of ways it can be used. We'll just review these Uh, quickly, since we covered them a few weeks ago. It can be of something physical like sickness, rescue from sickness. It can be rescue from uh, enemies. That's a very popular theme in the Psalms. David writes about salvation or deliverance from his enemies. It can be salvation from physical danger. Paul's on the boat. Storm is coming. He he wants to be uh, saved from the storm. Disciples had the same uh, inclination. God, rescue us, save us from the storm. These are all physical in nature. In the spiritual area, there are several ways that the word's used. It's salvation in the past, that is, salvation from sin's penalty or justification. The moment that I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins, I am declared righteous in God's sight. I am justified. That cannot be removed from me. I will always be seen as righteous in Christ. It's not a work of my own, we're told in Ephesians chapter 2. It's something that I receive by faith. That's salvation past, salvation from sin's penalty. There's also salvation or being rescued from sin's power in my life now. So I'm becoming more and more and more like Jesus Christ. That's progressive. First Peter chapter 2, verse 2, Peter says, uh, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. That is salvation in the present, and it's progressive. Gradually, you're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. There's also salvation in the future or salvation from sin's very presence. The flesh is removed. Uh, Satan's dominion is removed from the world. The world order is set in place. We are transformed uh, finally into the image of Christ. We become what we were designed to be. It is a work of God. We don't do anything. God does this for us. And then finally, sometimes you see the word salvation and it's referring to the whole package. Just salvation, past, present, and future. Justification, sanctification, glorification. All of of these things. In Philippians chapter 
2 verse 12, I think clearly Paul is talking about the second one, salvation from sin's power, because he uses an imperative. You work out, literally it is the salvation of yourselves. Okay, you personally, individually have a responsibility and it is a present tense imperative, meaning this is something that you're going to have to respond to for your entire life, becoming more and more holy or more and more like Jesus Christ. Work out your salvation, present tense sanctification, because God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, so second question then is, how do I work it out? What, what does it mean to work out my salvation and become like Christ? Uh, I think that this, these verses here in 2.12 through 13 are probably the most succinct statement of the Christian life. You, you see basically this idea expanded, Romans 6 through 8. You have three chapters here. I think you've got two verses. So we're not going to cover, obviously, all aspects of it. I think this is just a, just a, a, a synthesis. Because what you see in these verses is, first, that your sanctification is the work of God. You you can't make yourself more like Christ. But second, you see that it's not a process where you let go and let God. You participate. There's a command or an imperative placed upon you. So what does that look like? Well, let's break it down. First, what's our work? Simply put, our work is to obey. Look again with me in verse 12. Paul says, So then, my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So then, my beloved, just as you always obeyed. Obeyed what? Well, he leaves it kind of vague right here. All that I've commanded you to do, Jesus said. Uh, That's uh, great commission. It's uh, fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Love, joy, peace, patience. It's the Beatitudes, being merciful, loving your enemies. Uh, It's the reason we study the New Testament and the Old Testament to understand what does it mean to be like Jesus Christ. Paul leaves it kind of general here. He's going to take it in a moment and make it specific for these believers, but it is uh, obedience to all that God has commanded us to do. Notice he also puts another qualifier on it. He says, as always, at all times. So spring break isn't, hey, spring break from walking with Jesus, and now I'll come back and start up again. No, it's, it's all times. This is the course of the rest of your life if you're a believer in Christ. Second qualifier, in my absence. Not when I'm just there and looking over your shoulder and I'm providing you with this continuous accountability and motivation, but even when I'm not there, who are you in private? Not just when people are watching, in all circumstances, Obey. Okay? Obey what Jesus has commanded. We'll get into a lot more of what that is, even as we go through the rest of the book of Philippians. Now, the second part of this is God's work. Okay? Our part, God's part. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, You work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Your sanctification is the work of God and it can only be accomplished by the work of God and his power in your life. Specifically, God's part is to empower you, give you strength to do it. He says here, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work. And that word for work is the word from which we get energy. 
Okay, God is empowering you. He is strengthening you. Second, God is the one who provides motivation for us. He says both to will and to do or to work for his good pleasure. And that word for will, it can also be translated to desire. It is to choose to do something with the intention or the desire to do it. The reason that we grow in the Lord is because God himself is providing us with desire and ability. Why did you get up this morning and come to church? Where did the motivation and the desire to do it come from? Did you just whip it up? Well, I tell you, you didn't. Where did you get the willpower to get yourself ready, get your kids ready, get everybody fed, get everybody loaded into the car, out the door, get here and find a parking place and walk in? Did you just whip up the willpower? Who created your will? God created your will and God is working in you to make desire to be more like Christ or you wouldn't even be here this morning. Do we wrestle with this sometimes? (laughs) Absolutely. All the time. Because we have the flesh trying to crush the desire to be like Christ. And the flesh is trying to crush our strength to respond to the work of the Spirit. But God is continually within us creating desire and ability. That's what gives us hope that we actually can become more like Jesus. Now, let's put the spiritual disciplines in this context. By spiritual disciplines, I mean things like this, what we're doing now. We come together and we worship together. It's a spiritual discipline. Or we, uh, we get up early in the morning or late in the evening. We, we open our Bible and we read. Or at lunchtime, we open the Bible and we read and we study and meditate and pray and maybe memorize. These are spiritual disciplines. These are ways that we make ourselves accessible to the Spirit to change us. In and of themselves, these activities are not spiritual maturity. And one of the forms of legalism is thinking that spiritual activity is the same as spiritual maturity. Reading my Bible is not spiritual maturity. The fruit of the Spirit is spiritual maturity. So, I read 40 chapters of my Bible last week. Man, great. Did you forgive? Did you forgive your enemy? Did you grow bitter? Spiritual maturity is a character issue. Spiritual disciplines make me accessible to the Spirit to change me. Okay, so... God's part, my part. God works and I respond and I accept the work that he's doing. I uh, respond in obedience to what he's doing in my life. I'm looking for what he's doing in my life. I'm making myself accessible and then he transforms me into the image of Christ. Now, a third element that is apply. Okay, specifically apply the work of God in your life. Paul in this section, he doesn't just talk about sanctification in general. He thinks about his audience. He thinks about the Philippian believers and he says to himself, what are the issues that they are struggling with? Let's just not, let me not just say to them, be more like Jesus. You say, I want you to work out your salvation very specifically. Here's what's going on and brewing in your church. Let's put a finger on it. When God convicts us of sin, he convicts very specifically. Notice in verse 14. Paul gets to the root of the matter for them. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Two big issues starting to pop up for them, grumbling and disputing. And the grumbling and disputing was leading to division in the church. This is one of the primary ways that Satan attacks the church. The word grumbling, uh, it's one of those, uh, in Greek as well as in English, it's uh, onomatopoeia. You know the, remember that from uh, seventh grade English? Yeah, I don't, because I had open walls. I had to learn it later. Uh, 
It's one of those words that sounds like what it is, right? Uh, in Greek, it's gongusmon. English, grumble. Grumble, 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 grumble. You, you, you can hear it. You can hear it. You can feel it. You, if you've never experienced it before, I'll, I'll describe it for you in a minute. Um, what Paul's alluding to here is Israel in the wilderness. Okay? Grumbling and disputing. Uh, look with me in Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16, remember Israel's been rescued out of Egypt, out of slavery. They're now in the wilderness. God's preparing to take them into the promised land. Okay, but they're in the desert. It says, then they set out from Elim. And remember, when they set out, they've got in front of them a pillar of fire at night, and there's this huge pillar, a cloud by day. There's a miraculous sign in the sky of God leading them. Okay, so they set out, and this is what's in front of them. And all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Uh, Grumbling is uh, a fairly private sin. It starts internally. I become discontent. I become so discontent that I just, I bring in a, a, a friend. Let's grumble together. Bring in a spouse. And then we get together with another couple. We just, we grumble. We're discontent. Uh, the root of the issue when I begin to grumble is that I'm discontent with something God is doing in my life. I am really not believing that God is who he says he is. I don't believe he's sovereign. I don't believe he's in control of my life. I don't believe that God is good. Think about Israel in the wilderness. Moses, you've brought us out here. God has brought us out in this wilderness to kill us. God is not good. God has brought us out here to destroy us. Is that true of God? Was that God's motivation to bring them out into the wilderness to kill them? No. He brought them out into the wilderness so that he could purify them and make them a nation for himself and bring them into a special relationship with him. But we don't trust God's in control. We don't trust that God is good. We don't trust that God is able to provide for our needs. They look out at the wilderness and they're thirsty and all that they see is dry, dusty desert And instead of looking to God as creator of the universe, the one who made all lakes and all rivers, they look at their circumstances and they don't see the power of God. So I don't think God's in control or I don't think God is good to me. I don't think he has my best interest in mind or I don't think he's able to provide for my needs and I'm discontent and I grumble. I don't have enough for my life to be full and rich. I don't have what I need right now. And if in a setting like that you have a need, I'm not going to serve you because I don't have enough right now. So I begin to pull back. And if somehow you're able to reach into my life and take from me some of my time, my energy, my money, guilt me into giving to you, I'm going to get angry at you and we're going to have a dispute. There's going to be conflict that arises. Or if perchance uh, you have more than I have, I look at your life and I think, man, he's got everything. I'm going to be jealous of you. 
and I'm going to want what you have, and then we're going to have dispute, right? We're going to fight. This is really important. This is one of the primary ways that Satan attacks the body of Christ. And at the root of the issue is something between us and God. Now, later on, we're going to talk uh, more specifically, chapter 4, about resolving conflicts well in the body of Christ. Let me give you just a couple of ideas just to get you thinking in that direction because this is such a critical topic. First, if you're, if you're sensing discontent in your spirit, first and foremost, it is an issue with God. Go to God first. Go to God first. God, why am I discontent? Is there something about you that's true that I don't believe is true? I'm not trusting that you're in control of my life and my circumstances. I don't believe that you really have my best interest in mind, that you're good. Or maybe I don't believe that you have power to meet my needs. I'm in the midst of suffering. Hey, first of all, check and see, is this an issue between me and the Lord? If it has spilled over with other people and you feel like, no, there's really a substantive issue that needs to get resolved, go to that person. This may sound revolutionary. Don't go to another person. 90% of conflicts in the body of Christ would be solved if we went first to the Lord and then we went to that person, the offending party. When you go to the offending party, choose to believe the best about them. Choose to believe that their motives are good. Choose to go and try to first understand their position, their point of view. Choose first to try to empathize. We do those three things, we're going to remove so many of the conflicts that disrupt the body of Christ. Now, in a few weeks, we'll talk more about how we resolve these conflicts. But the reason that this is absolutely so critical is because our testimony to the world is based upon our relationships with one another. The world looks in and what do they see? They see us fighting with one another and not resolving our conflicts, not forgiving, not loving one another well. Matter of fact, it gets so bad in this church that we say, you know what, we're going to go start our own church. Now, it's even worse than that. We're going to go start our own denomination, right? And the world looks in, and what is one of their primary accusations against Christians? My, how they do not love one another. So I can go to the office, and I get grumbling and disputing and complaining all day long. Why would I want to join your club and get more of the same? That's just hypocrisy. I don't want to be a part of that. I've heard that so many times. On the other hand, when we are loving one another well, that doesn't mean we don't have conflict, right? The greatest marriage on the planet has conflict once in a while. Because two sinners living under the same roof and then you throw in some kids, right? And you know, man, you're going to have, there's going to be conflict. How do we resolve it? How do we work through it? Do we forgive one another and move forward because we have one common mission and goal in life, and that is to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we'll set aside lesser things and we'll forgive one another. We'll see things from the other person's point of view and we'll empathize. Do we do that? Then the world looks in and Paul says, this is the basis of our testimony, our witness to the world. Look again, verse 14, Philippians 2, verse 14. Paul says, do all things... Not most things. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach. No accusation can even be brought against you because of the way that you love one another. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation 
among whom you appear as lights in the world, literally uh, stars in the cosmos. Your life is brilliant because it is so incredibly different from the way the world interacts. The people say, wow, there is something different amongst those people. I want to find out what it is. They will see your good deeds and they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. You will shine as stars in the cosmos. Paul says, this brings me joy. He says, this brings me joy. Notice the imagery he uses here. He says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you, all of you. The imagery is a drink offering was the last offering that was made. Animal sacrifices were brought to appease for sin and then a drink offering. It's the icing on the cake. It's the final part of the offering. Paul says, my life and what I'm going through is a drink offering upon your sacrifice and service that comes from your faith. And the reason I have joy is that we are sharing in the grace of Christ and we're sharing in uh, the joy of Christ. We're sharing in the purpose of Christ on earth. That's what brings me joy. And so he writes to these people, he says, I'm absent and there's no external motivation. But even in my absence, I want you to press on in the world and in your witness to Jesus Christ and shine like lights in the world, stars in the cosmos. As we conclude this morning, we're going to take communion together. And what I'd like for us to do is uh, to go before the Lord and say, God, speak into my life. Um, Are there areas in which I'm grumbling? I'm not content with what you're doing in my life. Or I'm disputing, I have conflicts with others. Are there areas in which my witness, my testimony to the world has been damaged? Lord, bring conviction. Whenever Paul encouraged the Corinthian believers to share in communion together, he said, the first thing I want you to do is to go before the Lord and ask him to speak so that there be no unconfessed sin. So as the body of Christ, I'd like for us to take a few moments. Men, would you come forward in service? As they're coming forward and serving us, let's just take a few moments quietly before the Lord. And ask him to speak. And then we'll we'll share the cup and the bread together. Jesus was sharing his last meal with the disciples. Uh, he took bread. You remember the bread was not soft kind of bread that we would eat. But it was more like a saltine. It was like a cracker. And he took it and he broke it. It was a really good visual image for them. He said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Uh, whenever you share this together, I want you to remember the price that was required for your sin, the physical sufferings. This cracker is like my body. This bread is like my body. It's going to have to be broken because of your sin. Every time you do this, I want you to remember the sacrifice that I made. Let's take the bread together. Then he took a cup. It had red wine in it. And he said, this cup is a symbol of my blood. The price of sin is always death. The Old Testament was death of a substitute animal. Now I'm going to be a substitute for your sins. If you believe, I will be your substitute and make payment for your sins. And every time you take this cup and you drink it together, you'll be reminded of the payment that I made, full and final and complete, for your sins. Let's take the cup together.
Jesus, it's all my righteousness. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Father. We do thank you for the blood of Jesus as we remember his sacrifice on our behalf. There is no other sacrifice to remove our sins. And Father, we're so grateful for that payment made for us. I pray, Lord, that that would cause us to live together in unity. I pray, Lord, um, that you'd begin stirring that within us. Um, the desire to do all things without grumbling and disputing, but, but genuinely trust that what you've given in our lives is it is adequate. Uh, and if there is a genuine need, you will meet it. You will provide it. We can trust that you're in control of our lives, even when we're in trial and tribulation and suffering. And Father, I pray that you would create uh, within this body uh, just a, a beautiful unity, even when we have conflict. It would be so beautiful that people would look in and they would see the way we love one another and they'd see a picture of the way that Jesus loves us. Father, I thank you again for Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.